This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On Media Watch this week, we look at how one MP's managed exit excited our media this week. We'll see more cracks appearing in the public facade of the Labour Party. But was that really the main story? Also, we've heard a lot in the media lately about hardships for businesses, and in particular hospitality, under red light conditions. Now that we've moved to orange, they can move on. But are the voices of the workers on the front line front and centre? But first, not worth the paper it's printed on? That's a pretty common complaint about supposedly substandard journalism. But it turns out paper's worth more than you'd think right now. One big printer here has just closed, citing the huge cost of paper and shortages of it offshore. But how did that happen in a country that's full of trees? And what does it mean for our local publications here, already wrestling with rising costs and the after-effects of COVID disruption? This is an RNZ podcast. Back here, nearly 150 Auckland printing workers are out of work effective immediately in a decision that's left them shocked in its swiftness. A global paper shortage and the government's decision in 2020 when COVID hit to shut down magazine printing are being blamed. That was TVNZ News host Simon Dello on One News last week with news that it was game over for the witty plant of printing company Ovato. Now that was previously one of the fixtures of the local printing industry as TVNZ reporter Katie Bradford went on to explain. The managing director telling One News a global paper shortage was the final straw. Europe has stopped supplying paper here and New Zealand suppliers are rationing it. It's over. We've got no paper. The problem's exacerbated by the government's decision to stop the printing of magazines and brochures during lockdown in 2020 and last year's closure of the Kawaro pulp and paper mill. Now that raises a few questions right away. How come we need foreign paper to print magazines here, a country full of trees? And was that short-lived ban on publications during the first COVID lockdown two years ago really a factor in pulling the plug on a major printing plant now? Later, we'll ask an industry leader about that and more about the future of print in New Zealand. But first up, though, that global paper shortage is real. The war in Ukraine, COVID disruption and even a labour dispute in Finland are all part of it, as I learned from a print industry podcast produced across the Tasman recently. Unprecedented uh, pressures that uh, supply is under right now, all those things, any one of those things on its own, a shipping crisis, war in the Ukraine, UPM, huge $10 billion a year paper maker, which uh, supplies much stock to Australia, on strike for now 83 days um, or yeah, almost three months. Any one of those would be big. All three of them together is really big. But the upshot is uh, prices will go up. That's The Print Files, the podcast of the Aussie print industry publication, Print 21, explaining that global supply squeeze on paper. And while the suddenness of Ovato's closure here last week was a shock, it wasn't all about sudden supply squeezes and price spikes, and it wasn't exactly a bolt from the blue. Ovato, which prints commercial catalogues and junk mail as well as magazines, was formerly known as PMP Limited, a trans-Tasman printing company led for a time by David Kirk, who was also formerly the boss of our biggest news publisher, Fairfax Media, now known as Stuff. Over the years, Ovato New Zealand took over lots of local printing companies, such as Adams Print, Baskins, First in Print and Times Colour, and it also took over the powerhouse of magazine distribution in this country, Gordon and Gotch. But the growth of digital media has hit hard in recent years, and last September, Ovato closed its Christchurch branch, blaming rising costs following the closure of the Tasman Mill in Kauro last June. 
Now, that decision was made by the owners, Nurska Skog, the giant Norwegian paper producer whose closest plant to us now is actually across the Tasman. And according to the Print Files podcast, it's a problem for print publishers in both countries. Now, Australia's only remaining newsprint mill, the Norska Skog plant in Tasmania, wants to hike its prices by at least 30%. Is that realistic, Wayne? And what will it mean for the newspaper industry? A 30% rise is, uh, is a challenge for any business. Uh, Norskiskog's parent in Norway has basically told it, you've got to make a profit. Um, Norskiskog's mill here in Tasmania has uh, been suffering or been in competition for years with cheap Asian imports. Uh, but those days are coming to an end, partly because of the shipping crisis, partly because of all the other crises that are going on. So Norsky Skog is now the major supplier for newsprint to Australian and New Zealand newspapers because to find alternate supply in these times uh, would be very difficult. The customers, the newspapers, will have to pay that uh, rise. Now that mill in Boyer, Tasmania, is now the main supplier of newsprint for newspapers here too. And when the Kawaroa mill closed in June last year, Stuff reported that it had been given assurances of imported paper from Tasmania until mid-2022. Stuff, NZME and Horton Media all say that they have secure contracts in place for paper. Though the operations manager at Stuff, Ricky Baker, recently told trade magazine NZ Printer, no one can predict the future and we need newsprint so we can continue to provide all of our services. And another complication of all this is who actually owns the printers these days. At the same time Ovato shut down in Christchurch last year, the magazine publisher ARE Media took it over after they got a green light from the Commerce Commission. ARM Media is the outfit that bought up the likes of The Listener and New Zealand Woman's Weekly after its German owner Bauer Media suddenly shut up shop during the first lockdown here back in 2020, leaving subscribers and retailers high and dry for months and all the staff out of work. Last year, ARE Media also said that Ovato's printing presses would help ensure that its titles and those of other magazine publishers could have a secure route to market for many years into the future. Well, that clearly hasn't worked, and magazine publishers now need to find another printer at a time of very tight supply and rising costs. The demise of the Ovato plant at Witty also leaves the rival company Webstar as the only major web print operation in the whole of the North Island that can do magazines in bulk. Webstar is part-owned now by private equity firm Mercury Capital, which also owns ARE Media, which is now the country's biggest magazine publisher. So is the structure then able to handle the pressure that's currently piling up on the printing industry and the publishing businesses? I asked the CEO of the printing industry's umbrella body, PrintNZ, Ruth Cobb. We don't really have the infrastructure here to support such um, big manufacturing plants. The, those paper, the paper mills, they're quite hungry beasts. When COVID hit, Carl which was our last remaining um, paper mill, which makes the stock that most magazines and newspapers are printed on. They re-evaluated. There was nervousness that volumes would drop. Initially, magazines and newspapers, some of them couldn't print. And they had a look at all this in the light of COVID and decided that they couldn't keep that um, business viable. To some extent, too, you know, the, the market bounced back quite quickly and probably um, caught them by surprise as well. And, you know, maybe that would have been a different decision um, if we had crystal balls that we could see into the future and figure out that that was going to come back 
you know, to some volumes that might have been sustainable. And Ruth, people might have seen on the likes of TVNZ One News, you know, the, the sad news about the closure of that plant in Woody and 150 people, some of whom worked there for quite a time, uh, losing their jobs. But there will still be part of that plant that's, that's operating and still making publications. Yes, so there is part of that plant will remain operational and part of the work that the type of work that they do there, they will be able to still produce some of those magazines in a different form of print. So some of those publishers may well remain with the Ovato biz. The reports about the closure of Ovato's plant in Auckland also referenced uh, the government's, uh, well, I'll call it a ban. I know they say it wasn't exactly that, but where magazines were deemed sort of non-essential during the, um, the COVID lockdown back in 2020. Um, But look, that is two years ago, and is that really a factor for closing down a print plant now? It does have some bearing in that space because what happened at that time is that some of the publishers were forced to quickly move across to a digital platform when they couldn't publish at all, and then, of course, when they came back, they then some of them came back but with reduced volumes. The flyers that you would have normally got through your mailbox every week saying, come to Harvey Norman or come to the warehouse or come to... New World or Countdown weren't produced in as big a volumes as they had been. And so that did make a change to the shape of the business. Yeah, I suppose at this point I have to declare um, a slight sort of personal interest in that two of my school-age kids were employed by Ovato to uh, deliver the circulars you're talking about there uh, and also a regional council newspaper. So, yeah, in the last fortnight they've had their sort of first media redundancy, I guess, but there will be people around the country who will be um, affected by that. It's probably not something that will come back. Some of it won't and um, some of it will. The, the, the community newspapers, they have remained quite throughout and they suffered from the same ban that the um, magazines did initially and but but they have bounced back quite strongly and some of those things going you know the letterbox is an important channel for a lot of people well, Ruth, when um our media last year took over Ovato, so the publisher took over the, well, the, the retail uh, part, I think the distribution part of Ovato. Was it really yeah, a good although, idea for the publishers to have a, a stake in the printing and the distribution as well? That's about economies of scale, I think. And, you know, there are probably other businesses as well that control their supply chain from manufacture through to distribution out to the to the end user. Um, and, and the R distribution business is still going, so that's still there. You know, the, those publications that they were producing can be produced by other printers in New Zealand, either in other print formats or in the same print format at a different printer. So that distribution channel remains for them. But but in addition to um, R Media, or A-R-E Media, as, as it, some people call it, it's spelled A-R-E, um, there's also the fact that Mercury Capital, the company that owns um, R Media, they've now got a, a stake in Webstar as well, the remaining printer. So w- would you be concerned as an industry that, you know, that there might be the same problem here if you've got, the again, the publisher also having a big stake in, in the printer? If it's difficult to sustain printers as big as Ovato, could that be a problem down the track? No, I don't think so, because I think it was a unique set of circumstances that has led to this situation. So I don't see that as being an issue at all. It was quite impressive the way that the magazine business responded to that disruption in 2020 and the lockdown and when they could, just couldn't be published um, and the closure of Bauer Media. We even had companies like uh, School Road, uh, a new publisher that launched four new titles in that um, uncertain market, which is a really bold thing to do. Are they going to find things harder now? Some of them are going to have to find new printers. Those new publications that came out of um, disruption in 2020, what that did was emphasise just how many people are reading magazines and how strong that market is. 
but there are other businesses that can manage that process for them. And the current um, squeeze that we've got at the moment, in the end, the, the cost of our papers and magazines is likely to rise, possibly quite soon, as a result of all that? Look, it's nothing to do with the closure of Avata. You can't go out your front door at the moment without you know, looking at price increases across a range of products. And so um, that was likely to be a situation anyway. We're reliant on, you know, the issue with supply chains and getting access to shipping and containers to come down to this part of the world. We all know how much the cost of shipping has increased. And then on our front doorstep, we have things like the minimum wage and going up 6%. So that puts the cost of labour up and the relative cost for your other staff and your business. Um, that was, you know, price increases, I think, in every industry are pretty much a given at the moment and, and not unique to our industry at all. But is there perhaps a vulnerability too that will worry uh, makers of newspapers? Yeah, look, there's a vulnerability with anything when you're relying on, on overseas sources. Staff have contracts going into the future, as will NZME and Horton Media, all the companies that are producing these newspapers, they will have been working on this problem much earlier than the, the glitch with Ovato. So this this is something they have been working on right through from the beginning of COVID and ensuring that they've got the stocks that they need to keep producing the papers. That was Ruth Cobb, Chief Executive of the Printing Industry's umbrella body, Print NZ. Good evening. Get those dancing shoes ready. In just under six hours, you'll be able to rock the dance floor at bars and clubs as New Zealand finally moves to the orange traffic light setting. Let's lay it out. The entire country shifts from red to orange at 11.59pm tonight. That was Simon Dallow on TVNZ1 News last Wednesday with the prospect of an indoor boogie just hours away. And this time, he said, there was no 48-hour wait for a change in the alert level rules. The health minister calling today's overall picture of the Omicron outbreak a very positive one. Mask use is still necessary in close-quarter businesses like retail stores, supermarkets and hairdressers and on public transport. But those not necessarily hankering for a dance and those who might find themselves at more risk under the orange rules might not have been so reassured by the COVID response minister not knowing when and where those rules on masks would apply from Thursday onwards. Hayden Donnell now looks at how some voices were missing in all the coverage of opening up and moving on from the pandemic. A toast to orange. orange. Wellington's Dakota Bar celebrating the return of proper hospitality. I'm relieved that we are going to be going to orange at midnight tonight. Auckland's St Alice buzzed too. Fantastic, we're stoked. Do a little dance New Zealand, the government has given the nightlife the orange light. That's News Hub at 6 introducing its report on our shift to orange on Wednesday. As you heard earlier, at TVNZ, Simon Dallow was also getting amped for a triumphant return to the club. The TV networks weren't alone in honing in on the deregulation of dancing. Dancing returns to Wellington bars, read the headline of a Dominion Post story that went on to claim, somewhat questionably, that the alert-setting move had been met with unanimous and unbridled joy by young Kiwis desperate to get back onto dance floors. The shift to orange was also met with unbridled joy by hospitality owners desperate to get back into profit. On RNZ's Checkpoint, Restaurant Association Chief Executive Marissa Bidois had this to say. We were very, very pleased to hear that this is happening. It's a huge relief for the hospitality industry, which continues to struggle under the red level restrictions. 
The rest of that report quoted a range of political leaders, but no health experts, worker representatives or anyone besides Green Party leader James Shaw, who wasn't either celebrating or asking for still more freedom. Not to be outdone, the Christchurch Press carried a story which quoted three business association spokespeople, four hospitality business owners, the chief executive of a theatre and zero workers. Meanwhile, the Timaru Herald carried the headline, Hospitality Operators Celebrate Relaxing of Rules Ahead of Easter, in a story which quoted a pub owner pictured with his hands raised above his head in celebration, two business association spokespeople and no one else. Other stories focused on Retail NZ's calls for mask mandates to be removed in their stores, presumably so they too can join the dance party. This sort of one-sided reporting has been par for the course when it comes to coverage of the country's alert levels. In recent months, dozens of stories and interviews have been published which focus solely on the concerns of business owners and the associations that represent their interests, with little balance and comment from other groups whose health and well-being will be affected by our COVID restriction levels. There are some exceptions to the rule, like this story from TVNZ's Breakfast, which features a woman with cancer, a girl with diabetes and a man with a heart condition, speaking on how they felt about the prospect of everything opening up. Myself and a whole lot of um, cancer patients and um, you know parents with children like myself who have um, medical issues, uh, medically fragile babies, we're worried there's still a high amount of case numbers out there and um, you know people sadly dying each day from, from this outbreak. So we're, we're worried for our children, I'm worried for myself. That's Lynn Kenny who lives with bowel cancer. For the most part, perspectives like that have been drowned out in the media by cries of get back to normal. The businesses making those calls do have an important perspective, but it can feel like other people with skin in the game like hospitality workers, the immunocompromised or just people who really, really don't want to get COVID are being forgotten or ignored. Back in March, Stephen Judd joked on Twitter about setting up a group, the National Association of People Who Just Don't Want to Get COVID, to make sure the interests of that little surveyed cohort get more airtime in the media. He spoke to me about why. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting really irritated by um, two things. Uh, One was it seemed like there was a flood of stories um, featuring the hospitality industry, their spokesperson or people with effective businesses all asking for uh, public health measures to be relaxed on the premise that would help their business, it didn't seem like many of the people interviewing them made them actually fill in the gaps in their argument without sort of noting that we are at the peak of a pandemic and people have pretty legitimate reasons not to go out. And I think they needed to be pressed on whether relaxing measures would actually produce the effects that they want to see. Uh, And that just didn't really seem to happen. Obviously, if you are immune compromised or disabled or particularly vulnerable, you don't want to get COVID. I'm able-bodied and well, and I don't want to get COVID either. And I don't think most people do. If you just polled people in the normal way that polls happen and put the question, would you like to get a serious flu-like illness that in a small number of cases will kill you and in a rather bigger one might make you chronically ill for a long time? I think most people would say no. Your joke has a serious subtext, right? Do you think that we in the media are too reliant on the people who send us press releases and who have the funding and clout available to put up paid spokespeople to represent their interests? Yeah. 
news is a beast that you need to keep feeding and it's much easier to keep feeding when you have a list of people who will answer the phone uh, especially if they get in touch to say hey i'm waiting by the phone there are three constituencies i think people could be talking to the people who are suffering from the impact of public health measures you know so our hospital and, and retail people there's the people who are experts about those measures now, and they're allowed to answer the phone too. I mean, you can get an epidemiologist on the phone. and But there's also the people who benefit from staying well and living in a healthy community. And that's the people where there's no one obvious to call. But that's why we so, need the National that. Association of People Who Just Don't Want they, to Get COVID. Absolutely. And look, that's a constituency that evidently really is out there. And the media should um, really find a way to cover it even if there isn't a spokesperson with an easily available number and perspective to draw on. I'm right here, bro. That's Stephen Judd. Elsie Coles is a senior hospitality worker and advocate at Raise the Bar Hospo Union, who recently recovered from a bout of COVID that left her hospitalised. She's been frustrated at seeing so many stories where workers like her don't feature, including in the coverage of this week's Switch to Orange. So much gets put on what customers can and can't do and hospitality workers and hospitality employers are sort of put to the like back burner of the whole situation. Um, I, even in the past few days, have had obviously with the orange light settings, um, so many people come in completely confused about what we're meant to be doing. We saw in the press conference yesterday discussions about nightclubs, <laughs> but there wasn't a lot of talk of cafes or those sorts of things. We also sort of seem to talk mainly when we talk about hospitality in the media to bosses and the associations that represent those bosses' interests. So does it kind of bother you that we mainly just talk to hospitality owners and we don't really have these worker voices in a lot of the stories? I mean, it wouldn't bother me so much if these were employers who were in touch with what their employees wanted. Um, But a lot of the time you're talking to the head of chains um, or you're talking to people who have award-winning, really well-recognised restaurants and businesses and not necessarily those working in what we consider everyday hospital. Um, And a lot of the time, the views of the bosses are not actually accurately reflecting how workers are feeling. Yeah, and how so? There's been such a huge push on just opening up. Um, And I can understand, obviously, why employers would want it. Their business can't survive if you're closed the whole time. But for employers, that's sort of health and safety risk. I mean, a lot of us are working insane hours because people are off either in isolation or like because they're household contact or because they have COVID themselves. Staff are forced to pick up more hours to do the job of two or three people, as well as the fact that we are coming in contact with so many people every single day. The chances of getting COVID are so high working in a hospitality job. Even over the, the previous mandates, you know, abuse over vaccine passes and those sorts of things were not things they were experiencing firsthand. I can understand why maybe it's not as much of a concern for them because it's not something that's in the forefront of their mind, but it does bother me that we don't see the media speaking about it either. Why do you think it happens that way? A lot. I've noticed it more towards the end of the pandemic. Um, People don't want to hear about the negative side effects of COVID anymore. Um, There's been such a push towards, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be over. We're opening up the borders. Mandates are going away. Those sorts of things that we're not talking about the day-to-day reality of people working in industries, and it's not just hospitality. I mean, nurses and people who work in supermarkets and emergency services are all in the same sort of boat as us. 
Um, but that's not that's not great news. <laughs> that's not something that's positive. I don't think that's what people want to be hearing about. Is this something that you've seen in the recent move to the orange alert level settings where uh, it's sort of almost treated almost universally as a celebration in the media and there's not really much perspective from someone that could be affected negatively from it? Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't blame anyone writing like that and I don't blame people who maybe don't want to read about negative things. We're all really tired. However, you're right, they've pushed it a little too far in the opposite direction and now it's a huge celebration where none of us hospitality workers are celebrating yet. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, Elsie. You're welcome. The spin-off Charlotte Muru Lanning is one journalist who has regularly highlighted worker voices. She spoke about why that's comparatively rare and what can be done to fix things. The fact that you can have an article that has four hospitality owners spoken to and then that's kind of, that's it. I think that's kind of reflective of potentially an erosion of worker voices in general in in this country but also overseas and I think that at the same time you have those kind of those voices of employers which are kind of like this taken for granted voice of authority in those stories I guess and I think that that's sort of a subconscious thing that this is the world that we exist in and these are the people that we're meant to talk to. A lot of journalists are quite time poor and it's a lot easier to talk to someone who runs a hospitality association or business owners. So they're available, I guess, to speak to. You used to work in HOSPO, and they've obviously been the focus of a lot of these opening up stories. But when you used to work in the industry, did you ever get bothered by the lack of worker voices in media coverage of your industry? I think that I probably wasn't quite as aware of it until the pandemic started. I kind of, I specifically remember it was maybe like a two-week period before we went into our first lockdown. I was working in a restaurant and a lot of the media coverage was talking to employers, bosses at different restaurants and bars around Auckland about how quiet it was and how customers were scared and so they weren't coming in. And so we were getting a whole lot of customers coming in really well-meaning, but I think that we were, as workers, really, really anxious at that time and it would have been maybe helpful just for those stories to have included how worried a lot of workers were. These are the people that keep the industry ticking. I just don't think that you can really talk about the industry without talking to those people who keep it going, who from the kitchen to your table or who actually make the food. How much of this is just that old story of power and privilege gets prioritised. Yeah, definitely. I think that a lot of workers there on low wages and they and their jobs are kind of they're kind of in a vulnerable position. So I think that that power imbalance is definitely not helpful in terms of making sure that workers feel comfortable to talk to the media. If I put you in charge of the media tomorrow, you could direct how it covers hospitality and other industries. What, how would you change how journalists pick the voices they platform? I think that journalists, we should be really reflective or self-critical on the ways that we're going about telling stories and so who we're talking to, how we're talking to them, how we write about them and all that kind of thing. And I think a lot of the issues that come up when it comes to, you know, 
not talking to particular people is yeah that we're not being as self-reflective as we could be on that and that sometimes it feels kind of uncomfortable to go out of you know normal ways of doing things which might be that you know these are the people that you speak to for a hospitality story you speak to the people who own the businesses you speak to the leaders of business associations telling stories about this industry without speaking to workers is you're kind of missing out on a whole lot of color in the industry and you're not telling a full story and I think people are kind of left without a full understanding of what's actually happening and I think that has huge ramifications really. Hey thanks for joining me Charlotte. Thank you for having me. There was Charlotte Muru-Lanning, staff writer at the spin-off, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about some of the voices that were barely there in the coverage of business moving out of the red and into the orange, the people working at the front desk and on the front line. Political reporters are always interested in any big-name politician quitting, preferably a scandal-hit cabinet minister. But there hasn't been one of those in a while, so they had to make do this past fortnight with Louisa Wall, an MP who's realised she'd never be a Cabinet Minister and was happy to tell the media all about it. In an interview for last weekend's Herald, headlined, It's Unforgivable, the real reason Louisa Wall quit politics, senior political correspondent Audrey Young said, Louisa Wall is grieving, there's no mistaking that. And Louisa Wall put her grievances on the record in the Herald about being deposed as Labour's Manurewa candidate back in 2020. And Audrey Young's account in the Weekend Herald made Louisa Wall's supposedly shocking departure seem not that surprising at all. Louisa Wall did a deal with Labour to give up the fight for her seat for a winnable place on the party list, on the understanding that she would retire during this term when a suitable job came up. And that suitable job just came up, Pacific Gender Equality Ambassador with MFAT. And Louisa Wall told the Herald last weekend she was keen. Being an ambassador in the Pacific focused on inequalities and the empowerment of women and girls and also how we can better support civil society in their support of our LGBTIQ plus whanau will provide, I think, a really good uh, next career for me in many ways. Well, so far, everybody seemed happy. But when TVNZ's Jack Tame trekked to Wall's Manurewa home for a chat on camera last weekend, Louisa Wall sheeted her grievances home right to the top. The Prime Minister told me she, I would never be in her cabinet. They were messages, probably not so subtle, uh, that it wasn't just she didn't want me in her cabinet. She was obviously very clear that she didn't want me in her caucus. News Hub that night called it a parting shot at the Prime Minister, while Stuff said that she broke ranks and was an MP who refused to know her place in the party. But TVNZ's One News that night didn't run Louisa Wall's comments about the Prime Minister in their news at all. And the next day, that intrigued News Talk ZB host Andrew Dickens and political editor Barry Soper. Didn't make it to the One News for some reason, known only to the One News editing um, people. Um... Well, I understand it didn't make it to the news last night, which I find absolutely extraordinary, uh, is because uh, it was one-sided. It was Louisa Wall's word uh, not against the Prime Minister because she hadn't reacted to it at that stage. And one would have thought that, um, you know, this was a pretty significant revelation. In the Herald the next day, Barry Soper said that all this showed that Jacinda Ardern needs to learn how to deal with talent and potential trouble. And in this, he was echoed by his ZB colleague Andrew Dickens. As the polls fall 
and the lower-placed list MPs start to lose their jobs, we'll see more cracks appearing in the public facade of the Labour Party. Well, maybe we will, and it is possible there are divisions in the government and the Labour Party that the public doesn't really know about. But, as we've heard, Louisa Walls was a managed exit, with Wall herself part of the management of it, and no one else has followed her out the door or even leaked any hint of displeasure about her treatment to anyone in the media. Now, in the Herald, Barry Soper did say that one cabinet minister had sought him out at a social function recently to enlighten him about disharmony in the ranks. But evidently, that wasn't newsworthy enough for Barry Soper to enlighten the ZB audience about at the time, or even now, after Louisa Wall's supposedly unsettling exit, except for that vague hint. Now, elsewhere in the Herald that same day, political correspondent Claire Trevet pointed out that Louisa Wall didn't actually criticise or condemn Jacinda Ardern for anything. She simply set out what she believed had happened, Trevet said, and then accepted Ardern's decision not to put her in Cabinet. However, there was another opportunity this week for more of those parting shots that parts of the media seem to be hoping for. Have you written your valedictory? I'm writing it, Mike. <laughs> Is it, what's it full of? Fireworks? No. And ZB's Mike Hosking wasn't the only one hoping for fireworks in Parliament last Thursday. But on the Herald's daily podcast, The Front Page, last Thursday, Claire Trevette told host Damien Venuto... Don't get your hopes up. Can we expect any fireworks from her valedictory speech this afternoon? Will Parliament TV be must-see viewing this evening? Well, I'd watch and see just in case, but I suspect that Louisa is now done with all of that. But as it turns out, Louisa Wall did have a big dig at the Labour Party and those who were running that controversial Mararewa selection. And that did make TVNZ's One News on Thursday. Speaking a short time ago, she used the opportunity to apologise to her local Manurewa members for what she called unconstitutional actions by the party during the 2020 election campaign. The way they were treated in order to punish me is reprehensible and it is as a result of that corrupt process that I'm standing to deliver my valedictory statement today. Now if there was a significant story in all of this, it wasn't really about personal and political relationships or even fairness or tolerance of dissent. And ZB's Andrew Dickens was actually onto it. It is also telling that a position was magicked up out of thin air for Melissa Wall to give us some honour and resignation. And I never liked the use of taxpayers' money to facilitate removing an enemy of the Prime Minister. Smacks of a cavalier attitude towards our hard-earned tax dollars. And later, Lisa Owen was on to it too on RNZ's Checkpoint. Checkpoint can reveal outgoing Labour MP Louisa Wall will earn up to $210,000 in her new role as a gender equality ambassador, a job that was not advertised. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade has confirmed the fixed-term two-year role was created last month and filled by direct appointment. So what were the KPIs for this particular new job? When was it all signed off? By whom? And when? Now, similar questions were asked in 2014 when MP Shane Jones was suddenly appointed to a new MFAT role as New Zealand's Ambassador for Pacific Economic Development. But the genesis and terms and conditions of Louisa Wall's exit opportunity were not canvassed at all in 21 minutes of TBNZ's Q&A interview last weekend and Mike Hosking's amiable eight-minute exit interview on News Talk ZB last Tuesday or in much of the other comment speculating about personality clashes and possible cracks in government unity. 
Now this week, even critics and opponents of Louisa Wall gave her credit for punching human rights reforms through Parliament in her 14 years there. And one bill she leaves behind is something that the media should be more interested in, one for extending protection of journalist sources to investigative journalists. Now that's at the select committee stage and will be taken over by new MP Ingrid Leary. But the only media mention of that since Louisa Wall's exit was in the Herald's interview by senior political correspondent Audrey Young last weekend, the one with the headline, It's Unforgivable. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show for Midweek Media Watch. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.